Good to see you here this morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, just glad that you guys are here with us. You're the brave. You make my Canadian heart smile. Look at you guys coming through the snow and working its way out here. I uh, just talking to my wife up north in Linden. We're talking, I mean, we're talking eight to ten inches already. I mean, it is kicking down up there. So um, I'm glad that you made it to church this morning. We're gonna just kind of kick back and enjoy ourselves today. Somebody asked, Am I gonna change the message at all? I'm like, you know what? I trust too much in the sovereignty of God to change the message. I mean, I think God handpicked you to be here today. That's just the bottom line. So why would we change anything? We're just gonna keep on moving. I was uh, grabbing coffee this morning. I heard two guys talking, and they said, well, if our church is closed, we can always go to CTK Bellingham. They never close for anything. I'm like, yeah, that's us, all right? This label maker is one of my favorite things in the whole world, because I'm a borderline OCD organizational freak, okay? I love putting labels on things. Scary thing for me, though, is the fact that every single one of us in this room have one of these stuck inside of our hearts, We love to assign labels, positive and negative. It happens all day long without any of us even thinking about it. We we see a young person who's good at sports and they're a star athlete. Someone drives in front of us, they're a Canadian driver. Someone is evil. We call them a 49er fan, right? I mean, it's just the label. And we assign them on every single kind of level. You're, You're low class. You, you, so we have political labels. You're a libertarian. You're a Republican. You're a Democrat. We have religious labels. You're a Baptist. You're a Pentecostal. We have technological labels. You're a PC user or you're an Apple kind of a person. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on because labels are just a part of society. I'm not saying they're a good part. They're just a part of it. We love stories of people who overcome labels. Since the Seahawks made their run towards the Super Bowl, I was captured by a 60-second story of a young man who rejected a label that was put on him for most of his life. Let's watch it together on the screens. They told me it couldn't be done, that I was the lost cause. I was picked on and picked last. Coach didn't know how to talk to me. They gave up on me. Told me I should just quit. Don't move until I move. Don't move until I move. And the last pick is... They didn't call my name. Told me it was over. But I've been deaf since I was three. So I didn't listen. And now I'm here with a lot of fans in the NFL cheering me on. And I can hear them all. There's just something that happens inside of us when we see a story like that. Someone who rejected a label that was assigned to them. There's power to positive labels. We love them. We flourish under them as children. You're smart. You're gifted. You have so much potential that just does something inside of our heart and and inside of our life. Uh, We hope that you kind of experienced this when we had our church walk through a spiritual assessment. We had almost a thousand people go through the spiritual assessment, and, and whether we wanted to or not, we were assigning labels to people. Our goal was not to just label individuals, but to give you a sense of where you are in your relationship with God in the hopes that it would kind of encourage you to throw off whatever label you already had and move on to something that God had called you to. 
we laid them out as different stages. In your outline, you can actually see the four of them. And if you haven't taken the assessment, I really want to encourage you to actually do that because you're giving us an intense amount of feedback as a church about where it is that God is calling us and what we need to lay out in front of us as we look towards deeper and deeper discipleship. But the first label that we laid there was the crawl stage. We described it this way. Much like the crawl stage of human development, I'm still fairly dependent on others. I often look to others to tell me who I am and what I should do. I've been introduced to Jesus Christ, have given my life to Him, but I still look to others to tell me what this means and how I should proceed. I'm at the beginning of my spiritual life. There is nothing wrong with crawling. We all have to go through that stage. And the cool thing is you're actually moving in a direction. You're searching for stability. But now the challenge is to keep moving in the right direction and progress to walking. So we laid out a stage that we labeled as spiritual walking. It goes like this. In the walk stage, I have a greater understanding of who I am as a son or daughter of God, but I'm still in the beginning stages of making my faith my own. I've adopted some church culture, and I feel like I belong. I may have a tendency toward following a moral code as I learn the law, but don't yet understand the spiritual, the spirit of the law or the principles behind the law. I may engage in Bible reading and prayer through lenses of guilt and fear, and may view God or the church through, more through my family background than through biblical understanding. My spiritual life is taking on definition, but it's still largely defined by, ch- by church culture. Walking is great. There's nothing wrong with walking. You're making slow, steady progress, but there's still this dream inside of every one of us, right, to start picking up the pace and seeing a little more and experiencing a little more. So we change the pace, and we begin to move to the run stage, We described it this way. In the run stage, I'm beginning to own my own faith. I look less to others for answers. I'm not afraid to ask the hard questions and navigate a broken world through my faith in God. I understand no one can walk my path to freedom for me, but that I get there by addressing and working through the deep issues of my heart and my soul, my relationships, my emotions, and the deep underlying patterns and choices that make up my life. I'm not afraid to make the hard choices that lead to freedom in Christ that He came and died for. I no longer see my spiritual life as separate from the rest of my life. So over time, my faith becomes my own, and I begin to run free and experience the exhilaration of walking free in Christ. And as I run, I begin to develop spiritual endurance, and pretty soon I find myself in an all-out sprint for God's glory, and I find myself in the race stage. We defined it this way. In the race stage, my faith in and my relationship with God are my own. It impacts every area of my life. I understand my faith journey is a lifetime process. I've done much of the hard work to overcome and be healed from hurts that have kept me bound. Harmful, habitual ways of thinking, feeling, or behaving no longer have a hold or rule over me. And if I stumble or struggle, I know how to respond kindly and authentically to myself and what to do to get help from God and others. I look at my life as a whole and not as separate parts. I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? That's the dream that we're living with Christ in us, that He's actually taken up residence inside of us, that we can actually say, I'm no longer my own. I'm bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus labels me as a child of the Most High God. I'm a joint heir with Jesus, and I'm complete and secure in God's acceptance, and that's the only acceptance that matters to me at all. We love the positive labels, don't we? I mean, hopefully they kind of inspire us. We accept them readily. But the truth is we still have to deal with the negative ones. We struggle with the negative labels. We tend to let the label maker of another person define us instead of allowing God to define us. Or we assign to ourselves labels that just simply aren't true. 
I put a blank in your outline. You probably don't have to think very hard to fill in the blank because you've been listening to it your entire life. It's either your voice or somebody else's voice. And that just displays the power of negative labels. You are fill in the blank. I remember in fourth grade, a teacher correcting one of my math pages. And I will never forget her voice when she looked at me and said, you're stupid. I'm 47 years old and I still remember the voice, the smell of the classroom, where I was standing. Those negative labels, they just stick to our soul. We've all heard them. You're a failure. You're bankrupt. You're friendless. You're broken. You're an embarrassment. You're too skinny. You're too fat. You're stupid. You're alone. You're worthless. And very quickly, in the depth of our soul, we substitute the words, you are for, I am. And we end up in a very, very difficult place. Happens in a millisecond. So what do we do with all this? I mean, if this is our reality, what in the world are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, I'd like to walk you through kind of a six-month window in my own life when I was trying to figure out, well, what, what, what labels am I actually going to allow people to assign me? And how do I allow God to kind of pick off some of the old labels and strip them away and put the labels on me that He decides I'm supposed to have? How do I actually walk through that process? And how do I use my Bible as a tool to be able to discern what gets assigned to my life and what does not? Okay? So let me just have a moment of transparency walking all the way through, Okay? Let me roll back about six months. Okay, I don't believe I'm an angry person. I've never had anybody describe me as, oh, great, that fish, but he's angry. I mean, that's an angry, angry guy. Okay? But last summer, I had two incidences within my own family where I got angry to the point where I embarrassed myself and I embarrassed everybody that happened to be with me at that particular time. Okay? And what bothered me was I had seen a small little saying that was kind of settling into the back of my soul. You know what we call people who cannot control their temper? Toddlers. <laughs> and that just kind of bugged me. Because all of a sudden, I was forced to take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask myself a simple question. Am I an angry person? I mean, am I turning into that guy? Am I turning into the, the old church critic that sits in the back row and just kind of has a critique for absolutely everything, and they're just kind of known by their temper, and they, the smallest little thing just kind of sets them off? I mean, am I actually, am I, am I angry? Well, before you just accept a label, before I accepted this label, I think it would probably be wise to consult God. Because I mean, he may have something to say about that particular label. So that's what exactly what I did, right? I mean, I, I, I graduated from seminary, so I know how to work a concordance. So I flip open my Bible and I start looking up the word anger, right? And I begin to see what God has to say about my anger. And before I open up my Bible, I pray a little prayer that I would encourage you to pray every single time you open your Bible. My prayer kind of sounds like this. Father God, talk to me. Talk to me. Just lay it out there for me. I ran into some verses in Ephesians chapter 4 that I have read. If I've read them once, I've read them a thousand times as a pastor. You've probably read, if you're a church veteran, you've heard this over and over and over again. But for me, in this particular point in my life, it just, it was like somebody pulled back a curtain. The Bible says this, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. 
Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, do something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ. God forgave you. So I read those words, and I just kind of let them settle into my soul. Often we make the mistake, we just take the label, right? I felt angry, therefore you're an angry human being. I believe instead we need to allow God to be able to speak into those labels, and He should determine what goes on and off of our soul. So I just let the words settle into my soul, and I began to learn a few things about anger that really helped me understand what I was trying to deal with. Maybe you can learn something from my painful learning process as well. Here's what I learned. Number one, you can be angry and not sin. I mean, Scripture says this, right? It says, in your anger, which means, logically means it's okay to be angry as long as you don't sin. I mean, God created every emotion, so there's nothing inherently wrong with any of the emotions that God created. In fact, God only created them. He experienced all of them in the embodied form of God that we call Jesus. Grief, sadness, joy, discouragement, empathy, all are to be experienced, which means this, anger is okay. I mean, if you read your Old Testament, God gets angry. He gets really angry. In the New Testament, Jesus gets angry, so it's okay to be angry. In fact, I would encourage you, as believers, sometimes we need to get angry at an injustice. We need to get angry at evil. It's okay to focus your anger in that direction because God says His anger burns. God's anger burns against our sin because He sees the damage and the ruin that it causes, and that just breaks His heart, so He gets angry. The Bible says there's a godly place for anger, but at some point, apparently that anger which can be very pure and even righteous and even holy, as the Bible describes it, can tip into sin. In this passage, God calls us to make sure that doesn't happen to us by putting off the destructive and embracing the constructive. God calls every single one of us to put off our normal inclination to get angry about the dumbest things. Can we just agree we get angry about the dumbest things, right? We get angry because traffic is slow. What a tragedy. What a we carry such a burden in North America, don't we? Oh my goodness, 67 extra seconds to get from here to Costco, and that's enough to steal our faith and turn us into a raving lunatic behind the wheel. Right? I mean, what a travesty that we have to suffer the unbelievable weight of slow service at a restaurant. Oh my goodness, the fact that they would take 90 extra seconds to make sure that your chicken parmigiana is exactly the way you ordered it. What a burden we bear in this country. Is that not true, right? We carry the anger of an Olympic hockey score. Oh, terrible. Our whole identity is wrapped up in a group of guys in large pads chasing a small piece of rubber around ice. Oh, the travesty of it, right? God calls us to put off our normal inclination to get angry. He calls us to put off the destructive. He says, seriously, guys, let it go. Reckless words, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, stealing, rage, 
put that off and instead put something on. Paul says, put on an encouraging word. How about blessing the waiter for trying, right? How about pronouncing a blessing for the person in front of you who's also been delayed that particular day? Encouraging words. Put on resolution. Put on forgiveness. Put on restitution. Because Paul says if you do, you're going to experience something. It's called joy. As Paul describes this process of putting off and putting on, he really uncovers three kinds of sinful anger. I was thankful for this definition. Here's the first kind of sinful anger. It's bitterness, okay? When you continually hope that another person is harmed, you're bitter. When your anger has a focal point and that focal point is breathing and has a pulse, you've crossed the line over into sin. You've heard me say this before. Bitterness is when I drink poison in the hopes that it'll hurt somebody else. The only person that suffers when you're bitter is you. When anger grows roots and begins to infect your view of another person to a place where you actually wish or even worse, pray harm on them, you've tipped over. That's no longer righteous anger. You're sinning and God says, put it off. So bitterness is a type of sinful anger. Here's another type. The Bible uses two words in this passage to describe rage and anger. The word rage here literally means white heat, and we know what that feels like, right? You get so angry in the bottom of your soul, it's not even red hot, it's white hot. This other word that, that, that the Lord uses in Scripture here, anger, it means a settled condition, something that you've allowed to settle down deep inside of your soul. What's amazing is both of these words actually represent an internal condition. It's something that happens deep inside of you. I put a little equal sign in your outline, and then I use these words, clamming up. Paul uses a descriptor here, it gets us in trouble, because the truth is, some of us were taught that the only appropriate way to handle our anger was to stuff it way down deep inside of our soul, because good Christians don't get angry. Can I tell you something? If you were taught that growing up, you were taught wrong. You were taught wrong. I was taught wrong. Rage and anger are internal conditions. They boil deep within you. Nobody sees it, but the reality is it's destroying you from within. Living in the Pacific Northwest, we see a picture of this. Down to the south, there was a dormant volcano years ago. It had a cap on it. What nobody could see is that there was pressure building underneath of that volcano. And because the pressure couldn't force its way out of the top of the volcano, it did what happens inside of most of us. It just blew out the sides. And there was devastation and loss of life because of it. This may be news to some of you, so listen very, very carefully. When you clam up and stuff your anger deep inside of your soul, the Bible has a word for it, and the word is sin. Deep inside of your gut. Paul lists the third type of sinful anger. This is the one that my family experienced this summer. He uses the words brawling and slander. I put an equal sign in your outline. If rage and malice and rage and anger is clamming up and brawling and slander, we could put that as blowing up. Okay? We know what that feels like. We've seen that one, haven't we? 
Out come the words, the curses, the threats, the power play, the posturing, the labels, and the hurt. And when our anger tips into sin, there's casualty. Here's a clue. If you walk into a room and people that you love start diving for cover, it could be because you're dealing with a label. It's not the secret sin of rage and malice. That's, that's the culturally acceptable one. No, this one's pretty much on display for everybody to see. And when you lose it, you lose it big time. And everybody's just kind of taking a step back going, wow. There's a sinful anger and a sinful effect. And this is what God has to say about it according to Ephesians 4. God says, put off your desire to either ventilate or stuff your anger. God says, put off your desire to become embittered. Now, be careful here. This is not God just saying, come on, guys, suck it up, try harder. Come on, let's work at this. No, God is saying, you need to put it off continually. Cast it off. Throw it off. Can we agree together that, that anger often takes a long time to pile up in a person's life, and therefore it would take an equally long time to learn what it means to actually throw that stuff off? And to reject that label over and over and over again. I mean, I've found it takes long periods of time and grace to learn how to make that divine exchange. When I come to God believing I've got some righteous anger to express, and He says, here's what I want. You can be angry. You don't get to clam up. You don't get to blow up. And you don't allow, you can never allow it to push you into bitterness. So, Grant, I'm going to need you to exchange your anger. For some of these other elements, forgiveness, kindness, self-control. You know, one of the issues with anger is that when you're angry, you're often incapable of seeing the root cause. You know, when I lost it this summer, the victims in the whole scenario were the people that actually loved me the most. And even though they were the target, it took a long time for God to convince me that they were not the root of the problem. I couldn't see it at the time because anger blinds you from the true reasons. And God had to do a lot of work inside of my soul to understand, you know what the root cause of my anger was? It was my own selfishness and laziness. You know why I lost it on them? Because they were not doing what I wanted them to do in a way that I wanted it done. And that caused frustration inside of me and boom in the Fishbook family. I learned a lesson about anger. You've got to do something with it. You have to do something with it. And the most godly response when you're angry is to direct your anger at the root, the true root of the problem. I can tell you this morning, I am absolutely furious at my ability to be downright selfish and lazy. There's just something that's burning white hot inside of me that just wants me to remove that from my life because I actually want to run free. I want to reject that label even though it's just so easy to embrace it. Can we admit it? It's just so easy to just kind of embrace the label and live inside of it and rest there and hope that somebody will love you enough to bring you grapes and a cold beverage, right? You know, as I'm reading this passage on anger, I find Jesus right in the middle of it. Jesus' anger burns white hot against my sin, but He's never allowed it to embitter Him towards me as one of His dearly loved children. 
he had an opportunity to ventilate the full bore of his anger against me on the cross, but he chose not to. Can we admit that if Jesus had unleashed heaven that day on the cross, that none of us would be in existence today? He had the opportunity to ventilate, but he didn't. He also chose not to clam up and to push it down deep inside of his own soul. Instead, he, he pled with the Father, Father, forgive them. Forgive him. He was not embittered towards us. Instead, his heart was towards us, and that allowed God to to push all of the anger and all of the wrath that he had against our sinful condition onto his one and only perfect son so that he can embody Ephesians chapter 4 and do the unthinkable so that out of that travesty, out of that anger would actually come forgiveness and grace. It's unthinkable. One more piece from Scripture here. In dealing with your anger, you need to remember your identity and put on that which is true of you. I mean, what does the Bible says? It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't break God's heart by allowing your anger to tip into sin. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't hand your identity over to that label. Live a life worthy of the name by which you have been saved. What else does it say? It says, just as in Christ, just as you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Because of that identity, don't sin in your anger. Don't receive the label. Instead, exchange it and do exactly what God did when He was handling all of that anger from His Father. Forgive. Talked about that all last week. Brennan Manning is one of my favorite authors. He said these words, My dignity as Abba's child is my most coherent sense of self. I have dignity as a child of God that allows me to reject the labels that do not belong and receive the labels that only God gives me. Those I'm in charge of accepting. So today, officially, I have rejected the label of angry because I don't think it belongs with me. Now, does that mean I don't get angry? Does that mean I will not fail? Absolutely not. It just means I receive to refuse that as a part of my intrinsic value as one of God's dearly loved children because I think God wants more for me. You know, we're so good at, at, at taking the good ones and kind of sidestepping the bad ones, right? We just kind of want to let them kind of slide on by. Today, I, I, I'd like to do something for you. I, I want to tell you exactly how God labeled you when you woke up this morning. And I'm going to ask you to do something. Don't sidestep them because you don't think you deserve them. Don't find a way to go, ah, no, 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 let's not talk about that. Instead, would you allow the Holy Spirit of God to assign to you your true identity so that you have a biblical filter through which to understand who God says that you truly are? See, when you woke up this morning... God thought, that is a dearly loved child of mine. They are my beloved. You are His. Bought with a price. Redeemed. 
forgiven. You are worthy today of everything that God says that you are. You're not merely a struggling saint. You are a member of His royal priesthood. Set apart. I want to remind you, if you're trying to deflect it, at the end of the book, the bride wears white because the bridegroom says she can. Not because she deserves it, but because that's how the bridegroom sees her. Which means today, you stand before God, and when He looked at you this morning, He did not shake His head and say, somewhat stained. He looked at you and said, absolutely perfect. Breathtakingly pure. Just like me. Jesus looked at you this morning and said, now that is a striking family resemblance. That little girl, she's got my eye. That little boy has my smile. Take that label. As Jeff Foxworthy would say in a positive way, here's your sign. Wear it with pride today. Because your most coherent sense of self is who Abba says you are. Let's pray together this morning. God, I thank you that you love to label your children as dearly loved. May we live under it today. Father God, as we turn our hearts now to worship you and praise you, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who braved the storm and came out today. And I pray they would walk out of here encouraged, knowing that you have names for them. Precious labels that allow them to stand in the face of Almighty God and say, I am His and He is mine. Father, would you touch us today in this moment? We celebrate you as the God of church and the God of snow. In your precious and holy name we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen.